0: you're listening to the feed
1: this is the feed
0: this is the feed the feed you're listening to the feed in markham in richmond hill you're listening to the feed in Vaughan.
1: in stoville
2: in woodbridge in Unionville. This is The Feed on 105.9 The Region. I'm Ann Romer with York Region's only news magazine show dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. It is a numbers game these days how people surveyed feel about COVID-19, Canada's handling of the pandemic, restrictions in place for safety's sake, the economic fallout from the virus, but no other aspect of COVID-19 has garnered such huge numbers responding to the question is it safe to go back to school John Wright, Executive Vice President Public Opinion North America for Maru Blue joining us to tell us results from his company's latest polls about the uncertainty surrounding returning to the classroom, John, thanks for being with us
0: well, great to be with you.
2: this is a hot and heavy topic and a lot of people have a lot of opinions let's begin with you asking the question will you be sending your child back to school, to a classroom what was the response?
0: We have four in ten parents across the province who say that they're going to send, uh, their kids somewhere in the house Uh, so you get six and ten going back to a physical classroom the rest of them are going to stay at home and the reasons for that depend on whether you're an elementary school parent or you're a secondary school parent Uh, if you're an elementary school parent um, a lot of sending them to school has to do with getting them there to be with their friends getting them there so that they are taught in a school and not online i mean you and i know that elementary school kids it's hard enough to keep them focused on a television screen for anything more than half an hour. To teach them online is you know, almost impossible. So those are the reasons why they want them to go to school. And the older ones, a lot of people feel that they're mature enough to handle the, the whole situation of wearing masks and physical distancing and all of that sort of stuff. So, but if you look at those people who really don't want to take their kids to school and you remove the issue about not being able to learn online, everything else everything else is around health and safety. The concern about bringing COVID home um, and infecting not only the child, but also everybody else in the family. Um, there's, there's nothing more overarching in when we ask parents to list all of those things, the top three or four, all about health and safety. So that's basically the lay of the land.
2: John, something that stood out for me, a majority of Ontarian parents hold do not believe that the Ford government back-to-school plan is the best in the entire country, as the premier is claiming. In fact, 70% of parents say that regardless of who speaks about these issues nowadays, they do not know who or what to trust.
0: Yeah, and, you know, the, the, the Premier said that a lot, um, you know, many press conferences where he said that we've got the best plan in the country. Well, I, I don't know how I as a parent would know whether it is or not. The fact is half of people in the province basically say, okay, I'll buy into that. But just take a look around what's happened in the last weekend. I mean, whether it's in Israel or in Italy or in England or in Chapel Hill in the United States at a university, we have outbreaks. We have people who, you know, are using medical science, epidemiologists, uh, as, as many factors as you can get, you know, on a page to try and make things safe. And they're still having outbreaks. The fact of the matter is we don't know until we get there whether we've done the right thing. And so there's a lot of that. Apprehension about whether or not what is being done right now before we ease into that situation of going back to the classroom is actually the right thing to do. So no wonder people are concerned and confused. We have an education minister. We have health authorities. We have local health authorities. We have school boards. We have teachers' unions. We have uh, parents, uh, parent groups. Everybody's trying to be on a page, but for some reason we're not on the same page at all when it comes to this issue.
2: Interesting when it comes... To making the provincial rules for the reopening of schools, Ontario parents would rather see the Minister of Health, not the Minister of Education, in charge. What do you make of that?
0: I think it speaks to a couple of things. One is it was a bit of a cheeky question that I posed. I mean, you do have the Minister of Education, but what I was curious to see was whether or not it would align with people's concerns about healthcare, and that's exactly what we got. We had, you know, overwhelming numbers of people, you know, have children who are basically saying, look, I don't want to have an education Minister running the board on this, and the reason is because it's not really about education. It's not about you know when he stands up, he says you know it's the most important thing is getting kids um, an education. That's not what parents want. Parents want the education, but they want it done in a health, pragmatic, safe way. You know the the premier responded to the poll actually by saying, look, you know Minister Elliot uh, is in the room when these decisions are being made, along with uh, Dr. Williams. The fact though is that what we get to see is the minister in charge of education, who has had a history with unions across the province that, you know, wasn't really that great, in fact, didn't really solve the last problem until about a month into the the actual uh, COVID pandemic. So I I think it speaks to the issue that people see this as primarily as a health issue, and then secondly, as an education issue, and they, they need assurance that all hands on deck are looking through this lens as being about health and not curriculum or things like that.
2: How are parents feeling about the teacher's role in all of this and their reaction to you know the, the mini crisis or maybe it's a major crisis mm-hmm. that we're facing right now? This fear of the unknown as people and students and parents and teachers prepare to go back to school?
0: The survey showed that parents are empathetic, that when teachers say, look, I have an immune compromised circumstance or a legitimate medical reason for not being in there, regardless of whether the Employment Standards Act is going to come in and do something. I mean, the fact of the matter is that if you legitimately can't go, then maybe there's another role for you, and that's okay. And secondly, if you are voicing concerns about the health and safety of kids, that's good. But if you're going to simply take a stand and you are going to become more obstructionist and that isn't the word we use in the poll but that's just my opinion the reality then is that people are totally offside with that, they're saying look we have grocery workers, we have a whole series of front line workers and you should be considered a front line worker as well we're going to go into a situation and have to really suck it up like other people have and become more adapting to what needs to be a flexible future as opposed to what used to exist, I mean And and the reality is that most people know right now that March the 10th was the day before the New World existed. And if you want to go back and act the way it was before March the 10th, it's not going to survive in this environment. So I think the message was clear to teachers. Let's all work together. It's a symptom of not being, you know, in the same room you know, under the same tent, on the same page, but the message is very clear. We're empathetic, but let's get something done here let's pull together.
2: And there is a great deal of confusion. Every day something new comes out, a change or a, a denial of a plan. Let's say, uh, for instance, the Toronto District School Board's a plan recently was, uh, the kibosh was put on it, so they have been back putting together changes to the plan and and they're hoping it will be accepted. Let's talk about Parents in Ontario and their response to the news earlier this week that the government is suggesting that a staggered start might be a good thing and leaving it up to the school boards. 66%,
0: two thirds of parents across the province believe this should happen. Um, you know, they're totally in support of starting out with some kids in September going into the schools, not all of them, but then, you know, easing into it if it has to be into October, putting more kids there. There's going to be a core of people, let's be clear, about 25% of parents who will not send their children under any circumstances. And it's primarily driven by, um, by health concerns. Those, for those parents that are sending their kids, it's not about they need them out of the house because they need to work. Only one in ten of that group sending kids are are using that as an excuse. The issue here is that across even Toronto or Markham or Unionville or any place, you are going to have different elements of geography where COVID has had different sparks that you're going to have to be very careful about maybe taking those schools and saying, let's ease into it over here, whereas downtown we haven't had any breakouts at all. We'll be more aggressive there. I mean, this is going to have to take a lot of, I hate to say epidemiological kind of approach to things, but you're going to have to involve people who watch very carefully what the medical conditions have been in each area and what the response could be. So, you know, if the government is saying put it in local hands and make sure that's good for you, then it's up to parents to make sure they're communicating directly with the trustees to make sure that those pieces are being put in place. But it makes a lot of sense. Being pragmatic is what parents want.
2: And are you in a position to ask parents what their reaction would be should there be an outbreak in their child's class?
0: We haven't asked that question specifically, but I can tell you that the polling shows that people are very apprehensive, that if we don't take the right steps and put them in place, um, then we're going to have a collapsed system because we're going to have to yank kids out and bring them back home very, very quickly. You know, I... I have two kids who are now going to university. One of them is just out of high school, and they're actually going to go, but they're not going to be on campus because it's only online learning. And the biggest concern I have of uh, as a parent is not that they won't look after themselves, but whether people that they're rooming with may not. And, the real issue then is well when, a, when something happens, how do you extract them from a situation we 've yet to hear that next step all we 're doing is planning to get into the schools, but in the event that our students going to be monitored every single day, uh, is there an app that everybody's going to have to push in their symptoms and that the teachers are going to be able to see the cohort in the classroom, Th- these are even more granular issues that we aren 't even into yet, so I still think we 've got a long way to go on this and, and I think you know, parents are rightly concerned that if something happens they've they've got to know how to react to that.
2: What's the bottom line then with the polling that was conducted mm-hmm. by Maru Blue by you this past week? What do you take from it?
0: It's all about health, it's not about education. Number two is that people who are sending their kids to school, most of it has to do with the fact that a child will not be able to do online learning, and so there's an expectation that health will be the primary reason for looking after and making adjustments. And the three is there's got to be great flexibility, great pragmatism, and that parents are up for that. This is not about fighting battles over past wars with unions or governments or anything else. This is about how do you craft a local strategy to put it in place so that everybody can both get into the schools and then if something happens, get out of them um, carefully. And I think the last thing... And there are other jurisdictions that are going through this right now. Um, Everybody is connected by the web and by television, and we will know lots of examples. We need to learn from those other jurisdictions as well. When something goes wrong in another place, we need to be able to look at it and say, how can we make our situation better? And I don't think there's that much of a clearinghouse of thought going through this, but I think Parents are rightly going to be very alerted to those sort of things and bring them to the table and to see whether or not, you know, learnings can be implemented. So pragmatism is the word um, more than anything else.
2: The power of the public opinion poll. Is the government paying attention?
0: Governments will say that they know what to do with polls, and we hear that all the time from them, but they're doing polling themselves. And I think, you know, I've been doing this, as you know, um, for 35 years, and, you know, doing a credible piece of insight is important. This is a scientific piece of research. It's not just a poll. We went out after everybody's scrambling around looking to see how many people are going to send their kids to school, and this is about as legitimate as anything could get, and so we have some answers to it. What it does do for governments, though, is help them understand the environment within which they're not only operating, but the environment where they get permission to do things, because they won't ask some of the questions that we have in this poll. So what this is, what this is actually saying is, governments, you have permission. You have permission to stagger the starts to make it more health conscious, to understand our motivations and where we're coming from. You have permission to put janitorial resources in play and make sure things are are done in a pragmatic way. And, And more importantly, this is not about making that train run on time. It's about making sure that when it does run on time, you've got passengers in it. So those are the takeaways. Governments, they should take a look at All kinds of different opinions, but the reality is that this one strikes a very serious chord that elementary and secondary school parents are basically on the same page.
2: John Wright, Executive Vice President, Public Opinion, North America for Maru Blue. Thank you for joining us on the feed.
0: It's my pleasure. Take care.
2: You too. Thank you. Well, there is a great deal of anxiety surrounding back to school for many students, parents, and teachers. Here with some suggestions on how to mentally prepare for the return to class is Michael DiBolo, MPP for Vaughan Woodbridge, also Associate Minister of Mental Health and Addictions. Well, what is your pre-politics, uh, that background that you have? How does that help you understand what people are going through right now at the thought of returning to a classroom setting, Michael?
3: You know, being a parent myself, uh, my kids are not are, are all adults. There's always anxiety with returning to school, and, and now with this uh, COVID-19 and the potential for a second wave, there's even more anxiety. And we we know this from the studies that have been conducted that uh, 90 parents, 90 percent of the parents are actually feeling uh, very anxious about uh, sending their kids back to school. I think what we have to do is we have to make sure that our kids see that we're confident that uh, we're not ourselves panicking because kids are very quick to observe and to assimilate uh, emotions from their parents. So I think we have to prepare them properly, make sure they understand the importance of keeping their hands clean, Uh, if they're wearing a mask to school, that they keep the mask on and they know how to put it on and take it off, that they maintain the social distancing so that they keep themselves as safe as possible. We also have to make sure as parents that, you know, we, we monitor them and that we make sure that they do have a fever or a cough or... Uh, any kind of a symptom that that would indicate that there could be something that we've quickly mobilized to see what exactly it is, whether it 's just a, a flu allergies or or something more serious, and take the proper precautions i mean if all parents are responsible that way and uh, they themselves are confident that the system is going to catch the uh, as quickly as possible any sign of, a, of an outbreak or of uh, COVID that uh, will act accordingly and will we'll gain control of the extent to which other people may be impacted.
2: Well, everything you've said makes sense, but let's talk about the mind and the mindset through this. Your background, Michael, in mental health and psychology might help put you in a position to help all of us understand how really difficult this is.
3: And again, I empathize with all the parents. One of the things we did at the mental health command table was to discuss how we would work both with supports within the school system to help with things like anxiety, depression, or any early indications that the kids are having difficulty, and tie that to the outside resources that we have that are available for kids. Um, We have, you know, the kids' helpline for the kids to call in. We have supports for the parents. There is a website that can be used as well for the parents to understand better the resources that are available to both the kids. There's work that's being done with the teachers to ensure that they're able to identify early signs of uh, issues relating to mental health I mean, it it's going to be hard you know imagine the kids have not seen their friends for an extended period of time they've not been in an environment with a formal kind of structure to it because they've been at home and they've, they've had latitude to think to do things that they perhaps will not be able to do at school so it's going to take some time to build the routines again and to get the kids accustomed to you know getting up at a certain time doing their homework maintaining the important distances that we want to try to maintain within the schools, but I want to assure the parents that we are working diligently to make sure that the supports are there for them, because it's not just about what's one of the things we brought up at the command table, it's not just about the anxiety that the kids will feel going to school, but the anxiety that the parents are feeling, especially the moms who are finding themselves in a very different world now where perhaps they're not returning to work, that they're, uh, have they put their careers on hold. I mean, there's a whole other level of mental health issues that we need to help the parents address as well as they change their lifestyle now to accommodate the things that we see happening as a result of COVID.
2: And then there are the teachers. You know, they have their own lives and their families at home. Their kids may be going to one school. that te- They, as a teacher, might be going to another school. There would be maybe not as overt as we might see in young people, but the teachers might also be feeling anxious and confused. And how do we help them come to, to grips with this so that it doesn't sort of leak into the psyche of a young person?
3: And that is an excellent point, The teachers are frontline workers. In this case, they are going to be having carriage of our children, and they're going to have to have the training and the support that they need for their own mental health. When COVID began, we uh, invested as a government in uh, ICBT, the Internet-Based Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. Uh, it's available to all the frontline workers. It is completely available and completely free for teachers. There are supports that the teachers are getting so that they can learn more about Signs for themselves when they feel the stress and the anxiety as well of uh, being outside because again for the teachers it's a a kind of a double whammy. They've got to be concerned about themselves in a a classroom setting with, you know, other people's children. and then they've got to have in the back of their minds their kids uh, in classes somewhere else and hoping that things are being looked after as efficiently as they are in the, in the in that teacher's classroom, so we're we're trying to give the teachers all the tools they need. We're trying to ensure that they have all the supports they need, mentally and physically, to be able to do their jobs. And of course, you know, we 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 talk about our plan and how our plan evolves every day. We're going to have to see how things work out in the first few weeks, and we're going to have to pivot to ensure that we have the appropriate supports when and where they're needed. Um, we're very cognizant. I've watched the numbers very carefully when it comes to issues of suicide, when it comes to issues of uh, overdoses, addictions, and also the calls that are coming into our helplines, whether it be for the kids or whether it be the adults. Uh, we're monitoring those very carefully to see how the numbers are working, and we will work to ensure that if we have to expand services and supports, we're going to do everything to make sure we do. I mean, I I say it all the time and I firmly believe it, you cannot have health without mental health. And while we have done a great deal to bring our numbers down with respect to COVID, it's now our responsibility, it's our duty as a government to ensure that the supports are there on the mental health side, because it could become even a larger issue if we don't handle that properly. And uh, we're being very careful and I have my eye on the ball on that because I want to ensure that the supports are there for the families. When they need them, when it comes to the mental health and the well being of their children, and of course, the parents, the teachers, and all our communities across the province.
2: There are some out there who feel that they may be considered guinea pigs, being put back into the school system, that students, that teachers might feel that it's kind of a wait and see and react if something happens and makes them feel a little uncomfortable. Being guinea pigs.
3: Yeah, and I, I agree with you on that point. However, there is no playbook for COVID 19 in the province of Ontario, anywhere in the world actually. So, a lot of the lessons that we're learning, we're implementing and ma- making sure that we have the supports we need. I mean, you know, we planned originally for testing, and, you know, we have contingency plans now to test substantially more than the number of people that are being tested today because now we recognize that the key to success is ensuring that we can test people and then contact trace, and so that we're doing a lot more, and we've built a, a, a plan or a web that is going to be very effective, I believe, when it comes to uh, if there is a second wave, and if there isn't, it's going to be because of the work that we've done. So, I, you know, I, I don't like to consider myself a guinea pig, but I guess all of us in the world are guinea pigs to uh, pandemics likes of which we've never seen before. But given our track record here in the province of Ontario under the leadership of our premier, and a cabinet is relentless. I mean, I can't tell you how many hours we spend in cabinet every day, just about every day. It's slowing down a little bit now, because, but in the beginning it was every day, four or five hours, seven days a week, and we tried to turn over every stone we possibly could because we wanted to be ahead of it. And from the standpoint of you know other provinces, other parts of the world, I think we've done a decent job. I don't think it's over. I don't think we've completed the job that we started, but we're being very diligent and very vigilant in each of our ministries to ensure that whatever needs to be put in place to support the parents of this province and, of course, our kids, because our kids are our future. We cannot afford to, uh, you know, to, 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 to drop the ball on them, and, and we are not going to. We're working uh, really hard to ensure that we've covered all the bases. Could we have done more? Yes, and maybe the playbook for the future will have something in addition, but under the circumstances where we've been kind of doing this on the fly, um, I think we've done a decent job, but, again, I'm not going to pat myself on the back. I think we need to do more, and we are. We're, We're doing everything we can, and we're listening to the people on the ground because at the end of the day, they're the ones that are telling us, and informing us as well as our medical uh, officers what's best for us to do to make sure that our kids and that our our families are safe, especially because if we drop the ball for the kids, it's going to impact on our seniors, and we've lost far too many already, and we do not want to lose any more. So we're going to work together, um, and I want to thank all the listeners, the community. This would not be possible by government alone. It's because of the fact that people have listened maintained their social distance, and followed the rules that have been put in place by the chief medical officer that we're in the position we're in today and not one of the states in the United States. I want to thank everybody listening for their diligence. Don't let your guard down. Let's continue being vigilant. Let's look after our kids, our seniors, and make sure that we beat COVID and learn from it so that in the future, you know, something like this is not going to kill our economy and put us in a, in a tailspin with respect to, you know, our social, our lives. You know, we've all lost six months of our lives and we're never going to get it back. So hopefully these lessons are going to be important for forming that playbook that's going to make sure that uh, we're not guinea pigs, but actually ahead of the of the game come, come the future.
2: I'm going to ask you a brutally honest question and I'd like you to answer as a human being, not necessarily as an MPP, a part of a, the ruling government, which is... Better, which is worse, to send your kids back to school, uncharted waters, or to keep them at home where there is some element of safety and and less risk?
3: And I'm going to answer this as a human being, but also as someone who has experience in psychology and, and mental health. I would send my kids to school. The damage that we're doing to the kids by keeping them out of school and potentially impacting uh, trauma uh, or or creating trauma that will will show itself in years to come far outweighs the risk of going to school. I believe we have a good plan in place. It is thought out. uh, It will look after uh, keeping the kids safe, but the benefit of having the kids in a classroom, interacting with other kids from the standpoint of their mental development and ensuring that they have the cognitive Uh, Faculties developing appropriately for their age far outweighs the risk of COVID, especially with the measures we put in place to keep them safe, and the fact that we're going to be very vigilant and test and ensure that the kids stay safe, and if there is a possibility of something happening, how to isolate, uh, trace, and make sure that we minimize any risk to uh, to the families, to the the children, and to the seniors, to their grandparents and their parents. But I I honestly believe if I had young children now, I'd be putting them in school because the damage we're doing by keeping them out of school far exceeds the risk of having them in a classroom.
2: Only time will tell, and we are out of time. I want to thank you, Michael Tabolo, MPP for Vaughan Woodbridge, also Associate Minister of Mental Health and Addictions. Thanks for joining us on the feed.
3: Thank you. It's always a pleasure.
2: With information constantly changing and with the school year start dates now in flux, parents, along with their children, may be confused, even anxious about whether to return to school or not. Tina Cortez with one expert's opinion.
4: Dr. Natasha Sharma is a relationship and parenting expert, and she joins us next on the feed. Dr. Sharma, thank you for taking the time. Thank you so much for having me. Now, we're many months into this pandemic in general terms. What have your clients and patients been experiencing and sharing with you?
5: Now, as it relates to the pandemic, I haven't seen, in my particular experience, clients who are experiencing significantly elevated distress that is directly related to the pandemic. Most of them are coming in, have returned to be pre-existing or uh, other types of problems or life issues or, you know, emotional uh, goals that they have that really the, the pandemic has now just become a context for rather than something specifically direct and directly related to it. Um, but that being said, I, I know from uh, just speaking with them and I also know from the research and the data that we have collected that they're nevertheless has been an overall decline in people's sense of their own mental and emotional well-being across the country. So that is something that we are all experiencing to varying degrees.
4: Now back to school, under usual circumstances, is often the time of year when we experience excitement, anxiety. What about now, Mm -hmm. under this new normal?
5: Well, I think this is definitely, I mean, it's it's the kind of thing where people are following the news, back to following the news almost every hour and certainly every day because there's so much happening in terms of um, our country and, and the back-to-school plans. And, and people are very, I don't know if anxious is the term, but frustrated, um, concerned. They They may be feeling anxious and worried because there's, there's so much that we we just don't know. We still don't have a lot of the information uh with regards to how the new school year is going to look, uh, and yet parents are being asked to make a pretty big decision. Uh, and it could be, you know, unlike the last interview I gave on this, which was just a week or so ago, things have changed even since then. And now parents are being asked to make a decision that they will have to stick with for quite some time in the school year. So this, of course, is quite daunting. When you couple the fact uh, that with the fact that I don't think parents actually expected the, the schools to open, um, especially in Ontario, and then when they did, uh, were quite surprised, and it was uh, you know on them to make that decision. Uh, That, of course, can add to that stress because it's a really big one in what we're uh, facing.
4: And how do we manage that stress and anxiety? As parents, you know, we often ask ourselves, is this the right decision? Am I doing the right thing? There are so many unknowns, as you suggested, where COVID 19 is concerned. How do we determine then the best path for our own children and families?
5: I think we have to look at a number of factors. One, what the uh what is happening in the community level from a scientific perspective, that people who are experts in tracking and understanding and modeling the coronavirus have made decisions on our uh, for us and which you know that have presented us with the choice to either go back to school or to stay home. And um, you know, one of the good things for us here in Canada is we've had pretty good public trust in our government and their ability to handle this thus far. The unfortunate part is that, as I mentioned, we don't have information that we need. When anybody would like to make an informed uh, decision, they'd like it to be informed, you know. So what will will classes look like? What what can we expect in terms of um, stagger? Are they going to stagger start times, uh, leaving times? Are they going to physically distance the desk? The guidelines have been very minimal, and on top of that, Um, staff have received them at the same time as parents. So this has really been, in my opinion, um, an unfortunate misfire, and it's contributed to a lot of that sense of not knowing and uncertainty. So, you know, parents have to look at their own individual circumstances to make a a decision. There's really no right or wrong decision, I think, in this case. Um, We do know that community spread is at an all-time low here in Ontario. We are doing well with the community spread. Um, But that being said, uh, we are looking at other nations and realizing that if we don't continue and maintain all of our good hard work, that we... You know, nobody wants to go back into lockdown again. So I think that's on people's mind. And, of course, the idea of people have vulnerable family members at home. They're, of course, worried about themselves getting sick, um, the elderly that they may um, or, or, you know, vulnerable populations that they may be living with getting sick. And even their own children, you know, there's still um, some uncertainty about the longitudinal effects even for kids. So there's a lot of factors um, that are going into the decision, but I think at the end of the day, parents have to read the information that's available, even if it's less than they wish they had. Um, they need to look at their own personal situation, um, and that includes, you know, whether it might be good for their own mental health and well-being to send their children back to school where it's relatively safe. Because that's that's the other side of it is that kids are needing to go back to school for a whole host of reasons um and parents are there are many parents who are desperate for the relief of not having to juggle their children at home and schooling along with so there's there's a lot of different factors to to consider in one's own individual circumstance um but that is my advice in order to make a good decision for oneself and one's family
4: as you suggested, definitely many moving parts in this. You know, you said something there. You said that there is no right or wrong answers. So I guess that as parents, we should be cutting ourselves a little bit of slack, don't you think?
5: Oh, definitely. Um, I, I've i always been uh, a big advocate of parents taking care of themselves Um, in a reasonable way, obviously, not in a selfish way, but in a self-interested way, meaning um, really at the end of the day what children need are parents that are healthy and happy and calm because healthy, happy, calm, emotionally fit parents, that they are the ones who create healthy, happy, emotionally fit children. So, you know, you don't want to do something that compromises the parents. Uh, mental health or their emotional well-being such that um, the whole tree uh, eventually sort of crumbles, if that makes sense. So I do think parents need to be mindful of their own needs to a degree that makes sense and and exercise, um, you know, not judge
4: themselves
5: for whatever decision they need to come to as long as it's a good decision and a safe decision.
4: I love that. Happy, healthy, calm parents. That's the key. <laughs> what about in terms of our own children? How do we recognize those signs that maybe they are feeling uneasy or anxious about heading back to school, in whatever that mm-hmm. means, whether it's in class or remote learning?
5: I think most kids of about age six and up, seven and up, will be able to sh- tell you directly. You know, I we've I, I have kids. I have a seven-year-old and a four-year-old. My four-year-old was meant to start jun- jun- uh, junior kindergarten, and and um, the little ones may less, you know, be able to communicate, uh, but they are also a little unaware of anything else. So there's a bit of a double side there for the youngest ones. But older ones can certainly tell you. I encourage parents to ask their children how they feel about going back to school. And this time, they're all aware of it. You know, from, even the little ones are aware. But uh six and seven and up can really process their feelings about it too um so I would I have that conversation with them and um if you have decided and help help allow them to actually be part of that decision, even if you are making the final call and you know help them prepare for as much as you know. Uh, it's my understanding that in a couple of weeks, teachers will get access or less actually, teachers will have access to the classrooms, and at that point, there might be an opportunity to start connecting with teachers uh, shortly and um, actually being able to understand, okay, what can we expect for uh, grade two this year, let's say for my son, How can we prepare, and what can we expect the junior kindergarten um, you know, to look like, and how can we best prepare with the information, you know, like these are some steps and things that people can do if they're sending their kids back to school um, in order to offset the unexpected as much as possible.
4: If you have a child at home that maybe isn't telling you how they're feeling, should we monitor, you know, changes in behavior, eating habits, even sleep patterns perhaps?
5: Yeah, those are typically the telltale signs that something could be wrong even if someone isn't directly saying that something's wrong, especially for young people who uh, do tend to manifest or or present their um, emotional concerns or if they're feeling stressed or or sad or worried or scared, they're more likely to look uh, or feel sick or say that they feel... They're they're more likely to present those feelings as physical symptoms. And the term for that is called somatization, and that is more common in kids than it is in adults. So, yeah, you're looking for things like all of a sudden, you know, a child saying that they feel sick, or or tummy aches, or headaches, um, or just feeling or, or appearing more withdrawn than they normally are, quieter, less lively, less. If they're a bouncy, lively type of child, they all of a sudden, you know, less interest in things, less interest in in their usual activities. Um, Certainly eating and sleeping are the two pillars of, of health and wellness. So if there are any changes, so either there's an uptick in normal eating patterns or a downtick in a child's normal eating or sleeping patterns, those are definitely signs that something could be, you know, troubling them and you might want to probe a little bit more.
4: Dr. Sharma, thank you for your advice and expertise. If listeners want to contact you, how can they do that?
5: have I have a clinic in Etobicoke. Uh, we're serving our communities primarily virtually. We continue to serve them virtually with counseling therapy services. Um, <clears throat> across the country, but we also are uh, doing limited in-person sessions in Etobicoke. So that website is mkstherapy.com, and then we also provide our communities with tools online that they can purchase online, which are very inexpensive but highly effective ways to practice um, um, the. Uh, ways in which one can develop their own mental health and well-being at home, and that's through thekindnessjournal.com. And the Kindness Journal is a four-month guided daily journal that takes just a few minutes every day um, in order to create a more positive uh, mindset, a more optimistic outlook, and reduce stress and anxiety. And that's available on our website, thekindnessjournal.com.
4: Terrific! Thanks for joining us on the feed.
2: You're very welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Time for our first break. When we come back, how a good book can set the stage for a stronger school year. Stay with us. This is The Feed on 105.9 The Region.
0: Do you have a story idea for The Feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region.
2: Welcome back. I'm Ann Romer. This is The Feed on 105.9 The Region. So the first day of school may still be an unknown, but there's plenty of summer left to get in a good read and perhaps lay the groundwork for solid grades. Afwa Ba turns the page on this story.
6: Just a few weeks left until kids are back in class in September and joining me today to give some parents a couple of literacy tips to help better position their kids so that they are ready to absorb the new material when they're back in class. Professor Karen Krasny, she is the Professor of Language and Literacy in York University's Faculty of Education. Karen, thank you so much for joining me today. delighted to speak with you likewise. Uh, okay, so first off, we've been hearing about uh, you know the summer slide, the COVID slide, and these two terms being used interchangeably. Summer slide is basically after kids get out of school in June, um, they sort of get a lull and they don't really go, get back into their books until September, so it might be difficult for them to get back into that learning rhythm. The COVID slide is pretty much the same thing, except they've been out of class since March break, pretty much. Why is this sort of summer slide in- in particular, more harmful to kids this year?
7: Well, I'm, I'm probably less concerned about the summer slide than I am at the prospect of sporadic schooling, um, especially for those children who require specialized support or are without ready online access. And and I have to say, given my experience as a teacher for years, um, especially for those who may be in environments where their personal safety might be at risk. Um, I think that in terms of the summer slide, I've always found that in a lot of ways, um, summer is a great time, um, you know, when conditions are sort of ideal, which they aren't necessarily this time around, but that it's a great time to consolidate a lot of the knowledge and skills um, kids have learned throughout the year in sort of more real context. But at the same time, I'm very, very much aware of the concern about some parents about what their children may be losing, seeing that the summer was, the prelude to summer was uh, closed school.
6: Right, of course. And so with this in mind, and you mentioned perfectly as well, sporadic learning, do you have any tips uh, that parents can use to help kids getting back into that learning rhythm, specifically with any sort of uh, reading and literacy tips?
7: So um, uh, we talk about, obviously, um, we've talked a lot about how uh, it's important to provide children of all ages with a wide wide range of books and online and print resources um, in order to create a culture of literacy at home. And this is ongoing. So this would be regardless of, you know, we hope that, that we can create this kind of culture of literacy in the house um, I think that uh, it's important, especially in families where English may not be the language spoken at home, that that families tell stories and read children if they can um, in their home languages as well, so that um, and that they talk about what they have read um, as much as they talk about what they might have been viewing on television or if they've watched the show together, and uh, we can always help foster comprehension uh, of of text uh, through questions uh, as basic as the who, what, where, when, why, and how. Um, With smaller children, we tend to focus a lot on straight kinds of uh, recall questions, um, you know, who was the main character in the book, and uh, uh, I always start with what was the book about, uh, more critical comprehension questions encourage kids to talk about what they've read uh, or what they have uh, viewed on television or their films, and talk about uh, what are the text-to-text connections they can make. Um, these often come out naturally where, where families are used to talking about books and films, um, but also not just text-to-text, but text-to-self questions. Um, about uh, how is that relevant, how is the story relevant in their own lives, how can they make connections to the world, so we talk about text-to-world connection, um, and these are critical times in, in, in which we can um, start to foster uh, those kinds of skills with our children and, um, and teens, in terms of uh, what do they think is going on right now. There is the pandemic going on. Um, kids have ideas and they will have questions. And I find that both, uh, you know, even watching the news together and sitting down and finding time to talk. Um, it's, uh, it's, you know, the dinner table conversation if that's possible. Uh, those kinds of things all help with, with literacy. In terms of smaller children, we want to build their success and their confidence as readers. In uh, just in a, a little media release that I did recently, I talked about the importance of kids learning about the alphabet um, and letter recognition. phonemic awareness, which is about connecting the sounds that they hear um, with the letters that they're going to read. The word recognition, We want also children, if they have opportunities, story retelling is a very important skill uh, in terms of building comprehension and sequencing. Uh, Sequencing is also an important math skill. Uh, All children and youth need to see the purpose for literacy.
6: Okay, so then with those tips in mind, knowing that they can be implemented while they're at home, but also given the fact that they've been at home for so long and maybe are getting used to the home lifestyle, do you think then that kids are ready to go back to school?
7: Well, if you're asking to make a general statement, again, there are so many different uh, children are likely to experience um, the effect of the school closures and cancellations of activities differently, depending on a number of factors. And, And a lot of that has to do with access to resources Um, I am painfully aware of of families who, um, despite their best efforts, have a hard time, uh, you know, if they are essential workers and out there, um, and if there are little familial supports, you know, in terms of extended family that can help, that might have problems. And how many kids, you know, will have difficulty sometimes. Uh, you know, understanding how to maintain space and learn in a very different kind of a setting. I think one thing we can build in our kids as best we can is resiliency. And I have marveled at how many children can learn under some of the most difficult of circumstances. It's having an opportunity to uh, to build some sense of security with them, a, a sense of safety. Uh, and I do know that Uh, there's going to be a healthy fear of what's going on and and there's nothing wrong with that Um, and that helps them guide some of their decisions, the kids' decisions as they they move back to school.
6: I think that's a great point that you mentioned there, resiliency and sometimes kids under pressure are able to you know, really persevere under difficult circumstances. Of course, this is a- an extreme circumstance that they're going to be having to learn to adapt to. But we hope, of course, that at the end of the day, their safety is what matters first um, and that they are essentially kept safe throughout the school year. But still all the same, lots of great literacy tips that you have provided today. Uh, Professor of Language and Literacy in York University's Faculty of Education, Karen Krasney, thank you so much for joining me today.
2: Thank you. Take care. When we come back inside Blue Door, where they give hope a home. This is The Feed on 105.9 The Region. Stay with us.
0: Follow us on Twitter at 105.9 The Region. Ann Romer and more of The Feed after the break. This is 105.9 The Region.
2: Welcome back. This is The Feed on 105.9 The Region. I'm Ann Romer. Throughout this pandemic, so many organizations across York Region have been providing support to those in need. Jim Lang with the good work at Blue Door.
1: Many things have been affected by COVID-19 and the pandemic, and not the least of which are some people in the community in the region who are going above and beyond the call of duty to do work for people in need, to talk more about what they're doing at Blue Door. Thrilled to be speaking to their CEO, Michael Braithwaite. Michael, how are you? I'm uh, very fortunate to be well, Jim. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm mean, on Wood, same. Uh, and that's a, that's an important thing. Uh, you know, I'm usually this time of year, I know the radio station, we are so busy with community events and charity events, for, whether it's golf or walks or whatever, and none of that's happening. How, how has Blue Door been during the pandemic?
8: You know what? I mean, for, unfortunately, it's an unfortunate thing for our region's most vulnerable, uh, that kind of time doesn't stop. I mean, we day day-to-day, are. Just trying to survive, trying to find housing, trying to find supports, uh, both medical and employment. So, really, for us, other than taking the proper precautions, working with our partners in public health, uh, it's been busier than ever.
1: I, I could see that. Now, have you seen an increase in a certain segment of the population over other during this time?
8: You know what? Not, to, not really. So what what I see is. is us all coming together and, and working, uh, even better, even before as a region, as partners. But I say that because in talking with our friends at Yellow Brick House, uh, there's been a surge, unfortunately, in domestic abuse with people not, you know, people having to isolate, uh, that number went up. For us, it's been a little different because at times we've had to change service a little bit because people have had to isolate in place. So normally when you'd be uh, trying to get people rapidly rehoused at times, uh, you wanted to stay put or you didn't want new people coming in without a It's team. It's been a new, like everyone, a new normal, something different to work through. Uh, for youth, we've seen our youth numbers trail off a little bit, and I think it's because youth uh, with isolation, well, no one really likes to isolate uh, for youth, especially if they have challenges or addictions or mental health issues, uh, even more so. So they'd rather uh, not come into an uh, emergency housing system. Right, that would have them isolated for 14 days if they had to. So that's been a, a real learning for
1: us. Hmm, interesting. Speaking of Michael Braithwaite, the CEO of Blue Door, you can give more details of bluedoor.ca. One of their new initiatives that's pretty exciting recently, you get details of their website, is something they're doing with the LGBTQ2S community in their housing program. How did that all come about, Michael? Well,
8: so for years now, something that's really crazy for you is we've known that lgbtq uh, CSU that there is a different kind of service and they need different kinds of supports and they need a, most importantly a place to feel safe. And although Blue Door, 360 Kids, Salvation Army and many others are doing incredible work to support these youth, they don't have specific housing that can support them where they truly feel safe. And that was supported by uh, a study by Seneca College last year and most recently by um, our study of the Cambridge by Dr. Alex Abramovich, which showed, hey, we need a place to feel safe, we need a place where staff will understand our uh, specific medical needs, uh, employment needs, and, and you know, that type of thing, so that's what we've done, and I, to me, it's always been simple, hey, why are we not doing this, why, why have we not done this, for kids right now, if you want that healthy, you have to go to Toronto, I mean, there's nothing north of Toronto, Barrie, Simcoe, York, um, so we, through uh Fundamental Death Foundation being able to put this supportive housing program together. Now, right now, we are searching for a home, uh, three-four bedroom home that we hope to get in September to operate this program and offer not only affordable housing but supportive, specific sp- supportive housing for our uh, three to four LGBTQ two SU.
1: You know, we like to think that in 2020, the, everyone's "quote-unquote" woke and aware of the issues. But obviously, what you just relayed, Michael, speaks volumes that there's still a lot of work to. There's that paradigm shift to, that there is these residences for these members of the community who need specific needs.
8: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you see it. We do it for, for seniors. We do it for youth, You do it uh, for women escaping violence, um, survivors. You, you know, but we also, if I also get to for you the pandemic, we've seen a surge in violence as well because home for many of these youth is not a safe place, and unfortunately, they've been forced to stay there or return. And it's not a good thing. So this program couldn't come at a more opportune time. The data supports it. We have the dollars to do it. Uh, to me, it's a no-brainer, and I think it's a start of a much bigger program. We want to start this housing, house grow, and add uh, further homes and further services, and I think is be useful help to that, too, as they come in and say, hey, you know, you're missing this, or we could have this. And we have all sorts of uh, amazing partners. I mean, we're not doing it on our own, as usual. Uh, we're working with others to do that. And, you know, we've got CMHA, CAYR, and uh, DERARC helping us out. Um, just a, a overwhelming wave of support from the community, which is so endearing to see.
1: What is the Construction Social Enterprise Construct all about, Michael? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. This is so exciting. Uh, Our program is called Construct
8: uh, Social Enterprise, and really, the whole idea behind it. For, for years, we've been trying to get people uh, employed so they can actually afford the housing uh, rental market housing that's out there. Right, and sometimes we get them into jobs, and they're saying, Hey, you know, there's no purpose in this job. I don't like it, and it's paying me not, not paying me enough. That's just secure housing. So this Construct program fills a bunch of needs. We work with Luna at local one eight three at their new training center and major Mac. And what we do is we run a training program where Luna helps train them. And then we actually we actually become uh Blue Or the construct program is a fully operational contractor where we do residential and business construction. So any jobs, where it's cleaning up the construction site, building a new home, adding addition, you know, we'll get there. We're not there yet but they actually get hands-on learning, so by the time, the, at the end of the eight weeks, they actually can go on to apprenticeships where they're making, from start, 21 to $28 an hour. And coincidentally, Jim, that's how much it costs to rent a one-bedroom uh, apartment in the GTA, right? So it's real money, and you can walk away and say, hey, I did that. Like, that's mine. I, I was a part of that building. I, I, I actually put that together, you know? So it's a really cool program. We're doing a bunch of cohorts throughout the year. Our first one's on September 14th. And I will make a pitch, uh, and, and sorry for the rambles, but, <laughs> hey, if, you're gonna, if you need some work done, whether it's small it's a cleanup job, a really small job of painting or real estate uh, agent who need some staging you need some work done, let us know. We're, we're, we're guaranteeing quality and guaranteeing great competitive prices, but at the same time you're putting people to work. I need good, solid jobs where they actually can break but, uh, probably
1: better and let me tell you something from a personal anecdote the timing in this couldn't be better michael my wife and i in our house we needed a new roof and trying to get a contractor is impossible and they said because of covid no one's traveling and they can't keep up with the demand for that kind of thing small jobs a roof repair maybe fixing a door they, so if they these young people get the skill they will have the work
8: absolutely right we know that right now um, infrastructure needs are big and as you said Whatever the same in place, right? But it, you know the, the need is <laughs> overwhelming what's out there. So we're we looking for that, and it's, it's been pretty cool too because a lot of our partners have said, "Hey, normally we just hire um, you know anyone really. We just kind to tender it out. But why would we do that when we could put the work out to uh, you guys and not only help our participants but yours as well? Right? So everyone really wins. So it's a pretty cool project, and it's based on something similar that's some been really successful. Building Up in Toronto, and uh, one of my uh, you know, you choices for youth, and both of those uh, organizations are now big-scale uh, contractors, right, doing great work with a social purpose, and we all work together. Uh, we, you know, we've had people come on Home Depot, RBC, um, the federal government, the provincial government, it's been incredible the support we've got for this program that's uh, started up this year.
1: That's the way it should be. Get details, bluedoor.ca. He is Michael Braithwaite, their tireless CEO. Michael, thank you for joining us in the feed, and uh, keep up the great work, my friend, and stay healthy.
8: Thank you so much for your support of the community, Jim. You and the station. You guys are
1: amazing. Thank you, my friend. Take care.
2: If you missed any part of our show, go to 1059theregion.com or follow us on Twitter at 1059theregion. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.